Hello, this is James, and welcome back to The Word is Very Near You, my podcast about the ways God speaks to us in our everyday lives. A common phrase you hear is, no regrets. I want to live life with no regrets. It's often the stuff of high school graduation speeches. Live your life with no regrets. And in that context, it's usually about taking advantage of the opportunities that are before us, about not shying away from those, not having regrets about things we wish we would have done. And I guess in that sense, I can certainly applaud that sentiment, live your life with no regrets. But as we grow older, and especially as we are willing to get more honest about our lives and our past mistakes, we know that regret is just a feature of human existence, don't we? Regret is real. We make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes are far-reaching. The consequences of the things that we have done or the things we have left undone have hurt others, have hurt ourselves, have altered the course of our lives, and we live sometimes with a profound sense of regret and guilt about those choices. The toothpaste can't go back in the tube. The bell can't be unrung. It's done. No matter how many times we replay that incident over and over again in our minds, wishing we could somehow travel back in time and change things, we know that we can't, and we have to live with the consequences of what we've done. It can be an awful feeling sometimes, that deep feeling of regret and wishing you could go back and change things. I think about Will Smith's character in the movie Seven Pounds, a character who's made an awful mistake in his past and now has to somehow live with those tragic consequences. This mistake causes him to have to live and forge a new reality. His life has been completely altered by a huge mistake he made several years ago, and there's no going back. His life is never the same. I think that Adam and Eve must have felt deep regret over their choice to eat from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. This is evident from the way that they hide, from the way they sow fig leaves to cover their private parts, to their evasiveness when God asked them what happened. They felt regret. And that regret must have only deepened and intensified as God begins to lay out the far-reaching consequences of what they have done. Today I'm in Genesis 3, starting in verse 13. It goes like this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. If you've been tracking with me in this series, I've been looking at the four questions God asked Adam and Eve after they made their fateful choice. The first three questions God asked to Adam, Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And if you look at what's happening in those questions, God is basically asking Adam in three different ways, what is this you have done? In other words, he's asking the same question to Adam that he now turns and asks to Eve directly. What is this you have done? And I guess he starts with Adam because he made Adam first. And Adam is the one, if you recall, who directly received the command about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve had not yet been created. So he bears primary responsibility, it seems, in God's eyes. God questions him first. But that's not to say that Eve is without responsibility. Because now God turns to Eve and says, What is this you have done? What is this you have done? And this is a question that all of you who are parents recognize. Maybe not in this exact form, but some version of it. What is this you have done? What did you do? Or maybe more innocently, we're trying to be a little nicer. What happened? We have caught our children in some misbehavior, doing something they shouldn't be doing. And the question we inevitably ask is, what did you do? What happened? Even though we may already know what happened, we already know the answer, we want them to say it. So here again, we see God modeling good parenting for us, right? God trying to honestly confront Adam and Eve with what they've done and not rubbing in their faces, but getting them to confess, getting them to say it. In God's view, it's important that they accept responsibility for their actions. But Eve here fails, just like Adam did, by the way. Eve really fails to take responsibility. You might say she took good notes when it was Adam's turn. Adam didn't accept responsibility. He blamed God, blamed Eve. So now when it's Eve's turn under the hot spotlight, she, of course, blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's a true statement, of course, but you also detect some blame shifting going on here. Eve is trying to say, it's not really my fault. The serpent deceived me. And unfortunately, this verse has been the basis of a lot of bad theology and misogyny in the church, frankly. And what it ignores is the verse before it, where God has turned to Adam and asked him three questions, and Adam fails at all of those responses. But somehow the church latched on to verse 13, at least parts of the church did, and took it in a bad direction of somehow blaming Eve for the fall, and it's somehow all Eve's fault. And going back earlier in the passage, when Eve is eating the fruit, remember Adam was standing right there with her. They were together. Adam was not away working in some other part of the garden when this happened. No, he was a guilty bystander. He was right there with her. 
But somehow, for a long time, too long in the church's history, the blame has fallen on Eve alone. It's Eve's fault was the message. And that's just wrong, because both Adam and Eve bear responsibility for what happened here. And that's clear from the section that follows, the section that we traditionally refer to as the curse. After God has finished asking these four questions to Adam and Eve, he now pronounces curses. And he starts with the serpent, the one who started all of this, right? And if you were with me in a previous episode, I talked about how from the very earliest days, the church understood the serpent in this passage to represent Satan or the devil, a powerful anti-God force at work in the world. God says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. To be cursed in this context is to be cut off or separated from all other animals. The serpent will be unique in this regard. It will crawl on its belly and eat dust. Not literally eat dust, but it's going to be relegated to low status. And now there's going to be enmity or strife between the serpent and human beings. Verse 15 says, He, that is the woman's offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this verse is significant because many see in it the first signs of the gospel, the first signs of how someone who was born of the woman is going to be the one who defeats the serpent. The proto-evangelium, this verse is sometimes called, the first gospel is what that means. And many see here a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus, to the one who would defeat the serpent and crush its head. And there's a beautiful allusion to this in one of Paul's letters, Romans 16, 20, where Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul is writing to the Christian community in Rome, talking about how, because of their faith in Jesus, God is soon going to crush Satan under their feet. So the serpent is going to be cursed because of how it deceived humanity. Next, God turns to Eve and tells her how she will have pain in childbearing, how the very thing that will give her the most joy and identity and meaning is going to be a very painful and difficult experience for her. God also warns Eve that there will be tension and strife in her relationship with her husband. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. A lot of different ways and thoughts about how to translate that. But the idea there is that there's tension. It's going to be difficult. The marriage relationship will be challenging. And lastly, he turns to Adam and says, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you, Adam, not you and Eve, but you, you must not eat from it. And interestingly here, God now curses not Adam himself, but the ground. Because Adam chose to sin by eating the fruit, Adam will no longer enjoy easy access to its produce, but rather now it's going to be thorns and thistles. God says to him, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. 
And all of us who have worked at anything in this world, we know that it's difficult, right? That work is often challenging and difficult, and we encounter all kinds of barriers, not just in the natural world, not just in agriculture, but even in office work or any kind of work. We experience barriers and difficulties and problems that just seem ridiculous at times. That work is now no longer easy labor or enjoyable labor, usually. It's often involves a lot of sweat and frustration and tears and challenges and difficulty. Work in itself was not a curse. It was never a curse. But now work has become cursed as a result of Adam and Eve's fateful choice. And the consequences of their choice were far-reaching. They were cosmic. In Romans 5, Paul reflects on the nature of Adam's sin and contrasts Adam to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.12, Paul, referring to Adam, says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So there's the idea of original sin, right? That because of Adam's choice, Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world and death spread to all of us. To use a very familiar example today, sin is like a virus, right? Sin is this virus that infects us and just spreads to all human beings. That's the nature of what Adam has done. Skipping down to verse 18, Paul writes, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So there's the beautiful contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam's choice resulted in condemnation and death for all, but God makes a way forward through Jesus and creates a way for justification and righteousness through him. If you were with me in a previous episode, I talked about how the most moving part of this narrative about the fall is in Genesis 3.21, where it says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And what seems to be happening here is presumably some innocent animal had to die to clothe Adam and Eve with these garments. And I believe this is a picture pointing forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for us to cover us in his garments of salvation, to clothe us in his righteousness. That seems to be the image here, that even though Adam and Eve now must live with this incredible sense of regret and guilt and shame over what they have done, God doesn't leave them to wallow in that, but provides a way forward into a new life, a life outside the garden. It's certainly plan B and not the plan A that God had intended for them to live. I don't know about you, but I certainly have my fair share of regrets, of things I wish I could go back in time and change, of incidents I would play over and over again in my mind and wish I could undo. And I think that's part and parcel 
of the human experience. As I record this today, we are starting Holy Week, the week before Easter, and it's a time when we begin to turn our attention to the cross and to the forgiveness offered by Jesus and the new life he brings also. And it's a great time to begin putting aside our regrets, to begin facing those honestly and trusting that the one who gives life, the one who offers to clothe us in garments of skin, garments of salvation, garments of new life, has the power to help us forge ahead into a new reality, to live in, yes, plan B and not plan A, but to begin to live afresh. Thoreau said, to regret deeply is to live afresh. To regret deeply is to live afresh. So let's live afresh this week. Let's be honest about our mistakes and our regrets and trust that we live in one and believe in one who has the power to do new things in us, to create new life and to help us move past the guilt and shame and regret of our past mistakes. This has been The Word is Very Near You. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode.